Vanessa. Hello, Adam. How are you doing? For a change more energetic than you. <laughs> I'm tired. Someone who shall not be named gave me way too many apple pie shooters yesterday, and today I am suffering the consequences. You just need to learn how to take your hangovers in a stride. No, never. It just gets worse. <laughs> I do not learn. You just need to train yourself to treat everything that you encounter in life as another miserable reminder of your horrible existence, mm. and then... Hangovers are just not as bad. Mm. If all of life is a perpetual hangover, then what? how is that going to distinguish one bad day from another? And speaking of such profound philosophical thoughts. <laughs> oh, you liked the segue, didn't you? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. I liked it. This is Uncertain Things, by the way, the podcast. <laughs> the podcast that today has as its guest author and journalist Anthony Gottlieb. Mm -hmm. He was the executive editor of... The Economist, and author of the books Dream of Reason and Dream of Enlightenment. <laughs> Two volumes of a three-part series, um, basically overviewing the history of Western philosophy. He's by training a historian of ideas, and we thought it would be an interesting change in pace, where we normally like to bring uh, guests that can focus on one idea and dig Deep. We wanted for, I guess, the holidays to have a more general, even a bit lighthearted overview discussion of philosophy. Also, he's the books are full of fun little details and facts, like fun facts about philosophers that you may know for their philosophical writings, but may not know these like fun little personal anecdotes about them. So that's also nice. He brings up a couple in the conversation, which is fun as well. And like a good historian of ideas, he always ties those little personal anecdotes into the intellectual work of the philosopher. So I'd say this is a, an episode for you to relax from mm -hmm. the horridness of topics that we normally talk about. <laughs> so instead, sit back with a glass of brandy or hot chocolate near your fireplace and let Anthony regale you mm. with tales of Western philosophy. And don't worry, those of you who are here for the despair and horrible tidings from the media world, next episode we'll have Matt Taibbi, so mm -hmm. that was a fun that's going to be ranty. Yeah, just in time for the holidays. Well, we actually have a very special episode for Christmas, Ooh. But, but we will not reveal. Okay, I didn't know that was happening, so this is news for me too, exciting stuff. <laughs> no, it was your idea. Yeah, I know, but it was my idea, but I didn't think you were going to go for it. <laughs> Sometimes they listen. Well, if you enjoy our raging and raving at the close of day, please follow us on uncertain.substack.com. And if you are struck by holiday spirit, you can give us five-star review on Apple Podcasts because this really helps a lot. Yeah, and a wee copper or two in our Patreon bucket. <laughs> and by Patreon bucket, you mean our Substack bucket. Oh, we don't have a Patreon <laughs> Bucket, I thought we did. We do. We have, but we prefer Substack. But any which way you wish to give us <laughs> schmickles, we'll take it. And with that, Anthony Gollib. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Um, so before we start, do you mind um, just introducing yourself to our listeners with a quick elevator bio? Sure, sure. Um, I studied philosophy at Cambridge uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, and started uh, graduate research after that. But I wanted a little distraction. Uh, I took a part-time job, what was intended to be a part-time job, um, at The Economist magazine uh, in London. 
then fell in love with journalism, abandoned philosophy, um, and yeah. spent quite a long time, um, well over 20 years uh, at The Economist in the end. But I, I kept up a very close interest uh, in philosophy. And uh, at one stage, I think it was about the 1990s, an American publisher suggested to me I write a book about the history of philosophy, although originally the idea was just the 20th century. Uh, but I somehow uh, ended up <laughs> writing a multi-volume history of Western philosophy. I don't quite know how it happened. And I'm still at it very slowly. <laughs> First, you said you're falling in love with journalism, and yeah. we, we, our listeners know that both of us have an, a, a somewhat acrid relationship with journalism. As as journalists ourselves, I just wonder what it is. What is that made you fall in love with? Okay, it? well, I suppose one thing is uh, my experience uh, of, of working as a journalist has been almost entirely at the Economist, which is perhaps untypical in various ways, and perhaps more accurately, I should say that I. Uh, fell in love with uh, the institution of uh, and the productions of The Economist, that form of journalism. Now, uh, one obvious difference between that form of journalism and others is that it is anonymous. Uh, so it's not that I like the idea of a byline because I didn't have one. <laughs> um, working at The Economist then was, was actually a very smooth transition from um, uh, undergraduate work uh, because you sat around talking uh, to people all week and had a weekly essay crisis. It was really just to like university in a way. Um, only, of course, you were, you were addressing a much larger number of people. And it was really The Economist that, uh, that, uh, that taught me to, to write. I don't. Oh, that's interesting. I, I feel I found that my time at Oxford taught me to write <laughs> because of the the pace so that you had to churn out yeah. uh, content as as I didn't call it then back when I still called them essays. Um, you know the fact that I had to write two a week. Oh my goodness! I feel like that was the number one supercharger yeah. of, of my ability to write. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So what 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 academic habits of writing did working at the Economist punch out of you? Ah. Okay. Well. Um... It, it taught me that most words are unnecessary. Okay. Um, I was very lucky because when I was learning uh, journalism, it was still, everything was done in hard copy, uh, which meant that there was a paper trail of all editing because it was done in hard copy. And the people who taught me, my, my editors, took the trouble to show me what they had done to my copy. Which were the, you know they would, they would always they'd show me this piece of paper they'd say of course that's absolutely fine they'd have crossed out almost everything they would then explain every single change and why so I was really lucky because you could still do that by doing a lot of printing out these days but it just it's much easier to do in the old days when everything was hard copying because I had the two people in in particular. Uh, who took a lot of trouble with me and it, it showed me just how to keep things lively and to use as few words as possible. And also to avoid certain words, I find. Oh, yeah. One of the reasons why I got very tired of academia and I did not get as far as you did um, was just the, this uh, uh, being enamored with certain jargon, jargon, um, making things, it felt like it, it was intentional to make it as inscrutable as possible. And I really kind of grew resentful of that over time. And, and I think what drew me to journalism was this idea of, I couldn't write in a way that 
regular people will enjoy and be and be able to access and so therefore these in ideas that i find so interesting we can actually have a conversation about yeah. as opposed to getting stuck in these silly silly jargon principles that only three three other people can understand right, right. well i think that when you are writing for a a, a general a non-specialist audience and the economist is, is uh, for everybody you you have to bear in mind that they they don't know uh, they're not specialists uh, in any particular subject, whatever you're writing about. Um, and so the, the the editors who who work there were always saying to me, "Well, what do you mean by this? I, you know, I don't know what you're talking about." Uh, I'd say, okay, I would explain it to you this way, and they say, "Right, well, that's what you put on the page." And it's all in a way, it's all, has opposite incentives. I think in academia, you almost feel that you've succeeded the least people understand what you wrote. I would, I would hope that that isn't the actual motivation of anyone in, in, uh, in academia, but I, I, know, I know why you say that. You certainly certainly recognize it. I mean, you don't have to appeal to large numbers of people. Right. No, and I, 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 to me, it's it traumatized me. And I, I went to um, my undergrad. I did in in Hebrew University in Jerusalem, which is is a fantastic institution, and I and I still cherish my years there. But I remember taking one philosophy class where I heard a professor saying, unironically, "This is one of my favorite texts in philosophy." I don't understand how. Oh, is that a virtue? Because <laughs> I, I can write things that you wouldn't understand. <laughs> Yes, okay. something I can achieve. <laughs> um, inscrutability is in my wheelhouse. So uh, the the other point I wanted to, in, in your introduction, in the midst of the the journey of writing the history of uh, Western philosophy, how how far into it are you? How many more? You so far you've published two books. Yes. How many more? Well, I'm hoping it'll be just uh, one more, uh, which will go from Kant to whatever I decide is the present day. <laughs> uh, now, I, I, I should say that at the moment, I'm working on a separate book, uh, just about Wittgenstein, for the for Yale's Jewish Lives series. And although Wittgenstein will also be in the third volume, um, I won't really start the third volume until that Wittgenstein um, is done. Now, I, I'm, I'm asked uh, quite often, uh, where is the third volume? In fact, I, I get, uh, and I, I'm very flattered, and it's very pleasing that people are interested in, in my work, but I do get an email at least every other week from someone saying, where is volume three? <laughs> it's been going on uh, for quite, uh, quite a long time. In fact, um, about a year ago, very belatedly, I finally uh, got my own website. And when that went up, I was keen to know uh, whether people would find it. So I Googled my name to see if it came up. And you know how Google gives you sort of related queries that other people have. So when I put in my name, what it says is, what it said for me then was, um, Anthony Gottlieb, third volume, Anthony Gottlieb, Kant, Anthony Gottlieb, obituary. So <laughs> the world thought, what happened to his third volume, the one about Kant, or did he die? <laughs> You're the George Martin of yeah, philosophy. Yeah. Well, that would be. I'm a big fan of Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, going into the project of of exploring the, the the history of philosophy, how do you see your work in relation to the work of other broad scope 
historians of, of ideas say how much how much does Bertrand Russell weigh on mm. your work? Well, I'm I'm a, a, a huge fan of uh, Bertrand Russell, who's my my boyhood uh, idol or one of them. When I was a kid, pinned up in my bedroom uh, uh, window was uh, wall was the the, the, the the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Bertrand Russell, and then later <laughs> Wittgenstein came along. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I love Russell's history. Um, I, I thought about the nature quite hard. So I wrote an introduction to one edition uh, of it, and I looked at the early reviews. I considered um, the charge, which is often made by professional philosophers, that it's very inaccurate, which I don't think uh, is correct. And uh, I think it's a marvellously lively book. Of course, there are a lot of his pre uh, prejudices and questionable statements. But I don't think that that matters. The, the, the solution uh, is to read uh, other books by other people with different prejudices in addition. Um, if you try to strip out uh, the per, all the personal quirks, you just get a very much more boring book. Um, and, you know, that book is, is still uh, read by huge numbers of people in huge number of languages. I forget how many years ago it is now, but it's uh, more than more than 60, I think. And that is a testament to its liveliness. And with philosophy, it's really important to be lively because otherwise people are not going to read it. <laughs> and, and, and that liveliness came at the cost or at, at the benefit, depending on your perspective, of, of as you alluded to, Burton uh, Russell actually imposing or or his own interpretation yeah. or perspective uh, and one of my favorite lines from that book is um, when he's discussing plato and aristotle he says if there's one thing that can convince me of plato's merit is aristotle's criticism of him which is just a gorgeous three-dimensional diss but beyond being entertaining it, it adds the value of giving another layer of the of, 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 to your outlook of philosophy. You're not just getting immersed in the history on its own terms. You are constantly getting a multi-layer dialogue between the author and history. And when you're reading it with some perspective from the time that, the, that, that Russell's book was written, for instance, or when your book was written, you're also get, getting another layer of your own period in dialogue with the, with, with the author who's in dialogue with the, with the philosophers, which I think is like Christmas for a historian. With Russell, again, you can see that he wrote the history of Western philosophy during World War II, and you can tell how that influenced his writing and analysis. Well, yes, that's another, yes, that's another thing that makes, uh, makes it so readable, is that he's really engaging with them. And uh, th that is certainly something that I attempt to do uh, as well. I mean, I don't have an opinion about everything in the history of philosophy, but, uh, but uh, when I do, I try and uh, engage with it. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with the philosophers as I'm writing. And that's one reason why it takes a long time. Do you feel you need to reach at least some opinion of your own about a philosopher before your work about them is complete? Um, well, the, the way I do research, I, I do have to come to some sort of conclusions about the, their views or the, those of their views that I'm writing about. Yeah, I can't do it... Uh, Otherwise, and again, that you know makes it a much longer, harder business. But 
uh, so much more rewarding for me. Reading your chapter about Hume, for instance, yes. one of your concerns seemed to be his, the question of his atheism, his belief or lack thereof. Yes. So is that, is, that, is that something that you prioritize to tackle? Or is that something that just as you were writing, you, you were in, increasingly annoyed by, um, by Dr. Johnson? Well, as you can probably tell from that, um, that chapter, I'm very much on, on Hume's side, both with respect to belief yes. in God, but just generally, if I had to pick a favorite philosopher, it would, it would, it would certainly... You left no doubt. Yeah, left no doubt. So uh, I suppose I, I uh, engaged with the question of r religion uh, with him because I think it's one of his most important uh, contributions and I think his dialogues concerning natural religion are a, a truly great work, one of the masterpieces of philosophy um, in English. And I, I think he made huge progress in, in the philosophy of religion. That was actually one of one of the few set texts that I had to study as an undergraduate. When I was an undergraduate in philosophy, uh, the history of philosophy was a very, very small part of it. But you, you had to do a tiny thing, uh, one or two set texts, and that, that was one of them. So I came to that one quite early. Can, can you speak a little more about your relationship with this question? Not just the existence of God, but the role of religion in philosophical discourse more broadly. Right. Okay. Well, I don't think uh, faith, by which we mean religious faith, has any place much in religious in, in philosophical discourse. It's one of the many subjects that philosophy looks into and wants to wants to analyze. Um, the existence of God, I've been an, an unbeliever since a very, very early age. In fact, I think I remember um, what it was that swung it for me, which was I used to like re uh, reference books, uh, and uh, I was looking at a religious atlas of the world, so it was colored in according to the religions. And I thought, hang on a minute. How is this possible? Is it that people with the same religion move to live close to one another? <laughs> or is it that people tend to just adopt the religion of uh, wherever they grew up? And I thought, well, obviously the latter. And I think that was <laughs> the beginning of coming to see religion and belief in God as more like a, an effect or a symptom of something rather than any sort of truth. Have you read Tom Holland's Dominion? The, the British historian, he was one of our first interviews that I recommend to listeners who haven't heard it yet to give it a listen. Uh, he, he talks about the experience where he started applying the, the same an, um, analytical criticism that he did on world religions to his own secular liberal beliefs. And he he struggled to come to terms with just how fundamentally defined they were by Christian tradition, how ideas of salvation and revolution and fundamentalism evolved over the years from the Gnostics through the Catholic Church to the Reformation to Black Lives Matter and carried with it consistently that... Christian fiber, that Christian germ. And it made him feel a touch of melancholy about his own atheism, the atheism that he grew up in, because he felt that without that historical context, it becomes empty or at least more shallow than he ever believed it to be. And I think in that he tapped into an edge of reactionary sentiment that you 
can see in in the West, where that absence of of religion, even even put aside the question of a creator or the the metaphysical truth of it, is beginning to show. And that's something that I find both interesting and potentially alarming as a hypersecularist, but I, I wonder if it's something that you've in any way um, wrestled with. Well, I, I, I certainly find many uh, religious writings, especially by uh, religious people who are good philosophers, uh, fascinating and interesting and something that's always necessary to uh, wrestle with. Uh, and when I hear that a philosopher... Um, that I respect is is a believer. I'm always interested to to read their reasons. So I have to continually test one's own views. I mean, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Always got to be alert to that that possibility. But my 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 unfaith has never been shaken. <laughs> but uh, it's constantly reexamined. I mean, I, for one thing, uh, I just find it a fascinating, religious belief, a fascinating phenomenon. I simply can't understand how people get into that place. And yet, you know, they're, they're human like me. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a big puzzle. It's something I'd really have to understand. I mean, it's a, I think it's something that it, even in our current times, like during the pandemic, I think I was reading that more people have turned to religion. I think there is something about at times of e- extreme uncertainty and stress that people uh, seek uh, frameworks, yeah. perhaps, for living that that have some sort of mystical element. Yeah. I, I haven't thought about it too deeply, but I mean, but I think that that is something that you write about in your book around how the uncertainty of the time period very much influences the philosophy that results. Um, and I was I was curious if you could speak a little bit more to that about that that relationship between uh, societal happenings and mm. and philosophy that emerges. Yeah. Well, I, I, I suppose two um, periods uh, that I've that I've covered so far um, are, are relevant here. One is the uh, the, the Hellenistic period, late uh, late uh, antiquity, when there was just this huge panoply of available religions that people were choosing uh, between uh, Christianity, um, not not established um, in the earlier period, not even around yet. Um, an awful lot of ideas in the mix. Some of them we would classify as magical beliefs rather than than religious beliefs. And what we see in that period is the the, the most of the philosophers had at least something to say about how one should live and the meaning of life. Um, it was a much bigger part of academic philosophy then than probably most other periods. Uh, and that that seems to reflect the times, although in a way that you'd need a real historian, not just a historian of philosophy like me, to shed more light on. And I suppose the other example is the Middle Ages, when Christianity absolutely dominated not just intellectual life, but really political life. Um, naturally, an awful lot of philosophy was concerned with questions of special interest to Christians, such as uh, all, the, all the puzzles presented by the Trinity. Um, there was an awful lot of work to be done there on logic and paradoxes, and one of the main points of interest was trying to understand and explain Christian doctrine. So I think that that's probably another example. 
but if we're thinking about religion, I remember your uh, little book about Socrates, and I think it was about the Apologia. Um, well, it, it's um, what that was is a, was a, a prequel to part of the Dream of Reason. So the chapter on Socrates and the Dream of Reason uh, comes from the same place as that as that book. Uh, it, it looked at all of uh, Socrates. It talked about the Apology quite a lot. Yeah. So something that I found really interesting in the Apology. Socrates was executed for corrupting the youth and accused of not exactly atheism, but for, I guess, showing disrespect to the true gods. But you highlighted something that never occurred to me when I was reading the Apologia while studying history, was that this was taking place at a time when Athens, where Socrates was, was at its lowest point. It had recently lost the Peloponnesian War with Sparta, and its democracy, you know, the Athenian democracy, is just a shell of what it used to be. The entire city-state, the entire polis, is just a skeletal version of its glory days back when it was the Aegean Empire. So Socrates came in and and did his little intellectual games of, of Socratic questioning and started sowing doubts in people's minds exactly at the time when the city was probably least receptive to being challenged because it was so fragile, its, its institutions were so frail and scared. And this is something that resonated with me because it's an issue that we think a lot about in the podcast how when you are a thriving empire there's a lot of room for contention and free speech there's tolerance for intellectual mischief and nonconformity but when you start seeing resources dwindle when your authority diminishes then you're a little less tolerant and this is what athens was at that time so for the Athenian elite to be so incensed by Socrates is more than just the tyranny of the majority or the intolerance of mob rule as Plato later tried to depict it, nor is it simple religious zealotry either. It's also a class of people that is very insecure about their founding institutions because they were at their twilight as a city, as a civilization. And while religion may not have been the fundamental piece of the, of the law of the city, of the Solonic law of the city, it was part of the tradition and ceremony of democracy. And as any Burkean will tell you, you can't have the things you like about your, your legal system, of, of your societal system, without all the traditions and ceremonies that, that keep them together and, and put, keep people's faith in it. In other words, having this gadfly strut in and develop the Socratic method at, at your city's expense doesn't just disrespect the gods. It fundamentally disrupts the order and trust in the democratic system. Yes, yes, it certainly looks that way. And part, part of the hostility was also just the, you know, thinking that philosophy is fundamentally silly, which, I mean, that idea is as old as, as philosophy. Um, Aristophanes, you know, uh, wrote this wonderful comedy, The Clouds, in which the main the main character is Socrates, that he's made he and his his logic factory, as Aristophanes uh, calls it, 
are made fun of. They're always quibbling over minor matters, and and perhaps this is relevant um, in, in in the clouds. Uh, Aristophanes makes a, a point of of uh, attacking the Socrates and his logic factory for turning children against their parents, makes them question their parents. Uh, and of course, Socrates was questioning Athens. One of the questions we wanted to ask you about was, uh, to what extent did the philosophers' personalities result in the extent of their influence, if you will? Is, is there a connection between how they were as people and to the extent to which they are remembered? But today? when I was th- having this dialogue with Vanessa, I was also thinking about Socrates because it seemed at least by the, you know, we are only getting tertiary accounts of so the Socrates, the historical Socrates to the extent that he existed. But all, all those sound, like uh, fragments that we do get are of a, of a personality, clearly somebody who seemed to have left an, an, a, at least a symbolic yeah. impact. Yeah. So, so personal charisma seems to play a role in, in, in the longevity of a philosopher. Uh, well, in, uh, some of them. So I mean, Socrates is a good case. Um, now, uh, Wittgenstein, who I'm working on at the moment, but has not yet appeared in any books, that is, is definitely another one. Uh, everyone who was directly concerned with him um, talk, talked about the immense force of his personality. And, and uh, uh, Bertrand Russell, for example, who we mentioned before, who was essentially his first teacher in, in philosophy, um, wrote to his friends, you know, when quite often when Wittgenstein, who was basically just a kid, um, argues with me, I just, I feel he must be right. <laughs> couldn't give reasons. And there were several other great figures of Cambridge of the, of the period who were saying the, the same thing. Uh, professors who would say that they were they were sort of a, a afraid of him. Um, so Socrates and Wittgenstein, uh, some others, yes, but they're the particularly striking examples that I can think of. Now, with Hume, his personality, I think that his personality... Uh, because so many philosophers uh, have warmed to him and warmed, uh, I suspect some of their warming to uh, him and his views is to his personality. Like you, you're saying that they were still antagonistic to 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 his provocations, but he was so likable, and so charming that they couldn't resist him. Yes, there was there was a part of that, but also the uh, uh, the philosophers today who who regard him as a hero. They, when they, they write so warmly about him as a person, you can't help thinking maybe this is playing some role there too. And this is, this is uh, true of me too as well. But uh, I do think it's only a minority of the great philosophers where we can easily draw uh, some connection between their charisma, their personality, and uh, their reputation. I guess a more difficult... Um question would be it's not necessarily their personality but the 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 charisma of their writing i guess the persuasiveness or their you could call it the rhetoric or their style to flourish to what extent does that um you know distort our our evaluation of those old philosophers well i mean when you were saying that the first thing i thought of was um one of the two two of the most uh difficult philosophers to read hegel and Heidegger. Mm, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I find it hard to believe that, that, that anyone is sort of charmed by them. And yet, uh, you know, both of them, an, an enormous number uh, of, of admirers. Now, 
maybe they they perceive the text differently and do find it charming and they and they would describe it as brilliantly written uh, I, uh, I don't know i just can't see it myself but presumably they do I, I, as an aside to that we had a conversation with uh, philosophy professor um uh, tamla summers and we got into a discussion about the value of john rawls he hates john oh. rawls profoundly we got into a miniature debate over that point I, I think he mostly rejects and even even somewhat resents his place Rawls's place in in the history of political philosophy and the type of over rationalization that he brought in and part of my disagreement with him is that I find Rawls's writing utterly charismatic, which is surprising because it, he isn't the most exciting writer technically he's very limpid but it's but it's it's not it's not what you imagine when you think of of great philosophical prose and yet I don't know I find it irresistible but it is about the ideas it's a charisma of the ideas and the, the way that it me being brought up in my social particular context and the context in which I encountered Rawls and and his elucidation of, of what he sees as the moral obligations of people to each other in a society and I wonder if that kind of allure of the the allure of the right idea coming at the right time is what was at play with people like Heidegger and Hegel to whose classes we know people flocked so <laughs> Whether or not that charisma was in their their tone or style or just the timing of their ideas, there was clearly something there. Yes, and I can't really shed much light on that one what that, <laughs> that is on Heidegger's case. But as you were talking, I was I was also I was thinking of another philosophical writer that I hugely enjoyed and spent an awful lot of time on um, when I was uh, younger, when I was a student, uh, and that was the American logician Quine. Mm. Um, now his uh, his writing is pretty dry. Uh, the although there are all sorts of uh, little verbal jokes, um, but given the material, I mean, he's writing about the hardest things in logic uh, and epistemology almost exclusively. Uh, and I, I would say that I loved his writing, but I wouldn't. I, it's not that I would say it was it was a great style. I suppose it was the the ideas clearly communicated. So when we're talking about liking a philosopher's style, it's, I think it's not, not always clear what, what we mean. There are all sorts of things like about a philosopher's writing. If, if we're talking purely about literary style, there are some people who, who, who stand out. Uh, Bertrand Russell is really the outstanding example. He's entertaining and amusing uh, on top of everything else. Um, but there, there are, and I would, I would say the same is is true uh, of Hume. Although, of course, his English is very different, and, and until you're used to it, um, not nearly so uh, so easy to read. That's also true of Hobbes. Now, Hobbes's English is really quite far from ours, and if you read unmodernized versions of him, uh, which, which uh, I did when I was studying him for the book. It's really pretty hard work. I mean, it is English, but it's almost a different thing. I think humor also. I mean, there are a couple of philosophers who wield humor well, and I think that also helps. I think just having that little bit of break from the from the deep. The deep. I'm is thinking anyone you're thinking 
uh, Nietzsche, I think. I feel oh, like I, I remember chuckling from time to time yes, reading yes. Nietzsche, which is helpful. I, I mean, the, the Beyond Good and Evil, it's like I... Uh, I, I Schopenhauer is another. Grin. Schopenhauer? Yes, especially when um, Attack on the Attack. He had two favorite uh, subjects to attack. One was uh, Hegel, his big rival. Uh, the other actually was women. He was big He just had a vicious humor. But in fairness, he had the only Latin joke, I think, that ever made me chuckle, which is, what was it? Uh, anus yeah. obit, onus abit. In his, in his rage, he kicked downstairs. I think it was a, a, right. a, a, a lady, I think probably his landlady or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was taken to court and he was obliged to pay her some amount of uh, money every month. And when she died... Uh, and he therefore no, no longer had to pay this money. I think it was he wrote in his uh, diary, um, obit anus, abit onus. The old woman dies, the burden departs. <laughs> uh, a wicked joke, but yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, I guess there's just some of these writers, it's not it's not just the style, but they have some bewitching quality. Things that are not necessarily pure argumentative heft just think of it in the context of how people fall for religion or how people get attached to certain sacred texts it's not the truth of the prophecy that never comes true or the indisputability of the author's logic that that rallies people behind the work but there's a quality and maybe it's just serendipitous resonance but the result is that people come to believe and support and follow the work and and then at that point, when people get invested in that work or in that author, they'll go to lengths to defend it against criticism. Yes, yes, I suppose so. Um, I was just thinking of the, the various literary, not not really tricks, but uh, char- the, the different literary characteristics of different writers. And so uh, Wittgenstein is often held up uh, as a great master of philosophical prose. Uh, in German, he, he wrote almost always in German. Um, and one of the striking things about about his uh, language and his thought was also just in, in speech, because there, there are many, many records of his conversations and his lectures. And um, in both cases, uh, is very striking imagery, very good analogies, uh, similes. Um, in, in fact, this seems to have been a thing in his family, his sister, elder sister, wrote a family memoir and talks about how the children always used to talk um, in similes to one another. And this plainly stuck with him. And I think that is one of the reasons why his writing is so vivid and has helped uh, uh, explain some people's um, fascination with him. Can you explain your fascination with him? What what made uh, I, I totally understand Russell. I don't yeah. need any explanation for that. But what what got Wittgenstein's post? Well, I've, yeah, I've been wrestling with him for a very very long time. I was first drawn uh, into it because I became interested in logic uh, in in school. I mean, in the British sense of school before you go to so before eighteen, uh, and I think I came to that through Bertrand Russell and through reading. Uh, Russell on logic. I heard about Wittgenstein, started um, looking into it. Uh, there was 
you know, there was something, I, I understood very, very little of what Wittgenstein, uh, I read when I was um, a kid, but I knew that there was something there uh, that I was interested in. And then... I, Do you remember something specific that stuck with you for, at that time? No, it would have been the, the Tractatus, his early work, rather than the Philosophical Investigation. Uh, I'm afraid I can't at the moment. Maybe we'll come to the fact that something will come to mind. Um, but uh, I then went to a study at Cambridge, and I was taught by people, in part, who were pupils of his. Uh, so Wittgenstein was very much in the air, and one of the, one of the professors was, uh, at my time, when I was an undergraduate, was Elizabeth Anscombe, who was a close friend of Wittgenstein's and one of his main... Uh, translators uh, and actually when she lectured she used to wear his gown so he was he was he was very much uh, in the air and if you did philosophy in Cambridge in the 70s there was a lot of Wittgenstein then also Wittgenstein came from Vienna as did my father so half of my family comes comes from Vienna very different uh, background to his though although his family was um Originally Jewish, they converted. Mine remained Jewish. Uh, his was immensely wealthy. Mine wasn't, but still, it was Vienna. So when it was suggested to me that I write a book about Wittgenstein, which is almost 10 years ago now, um, I said yes, because I've always been wrestling with his views on the nature of philosophy. Half the time I think, yes, that's exactly right. And then half the time I think, nah. <laughs> But I keep going backwards and forwards, and I have done for decades. And given that there is also the similar background uh, and the people who taught me, yes, there's a lot to make Wittgenstein uh, interesting for me. But can you give us a bit of just a taste of what are the sort of questions that make you th- say spot on and what are the questions that make you say nah? So his, his leading idea, I, I believe both in, in his early work and his, later, and his later work, this is one thing that links them, is that there is actually something very wrong with philosophical problems in the sense that they arise out of some type of misunderstanding of our own language. Now, during his career, his views changed about what it was uh, about uh, our language that misleads us into asking meaningless questions. I've always been very tempted by that idea. I can't quite make, you know, as you work through examples, can't quite flesh it out, doesn't quite work, but um, hmm. there's something in there I want to get. So I'm, as you can see, I'm still wrestling with it. But to clarify, what you're saying is that y- your feeling is that something about the project of trying to deconstruct where language fails our ability to actually think clearly about philosophy is... Appeals to you, but you feel that he never quite landed that that the argument. That's or, right. What, I, what I, is I, it? The root of the problem. My, my working hypothesis, and this is this is probably what I'll say in the book. I never really know what I think until I see what I've written. <laughs> is that certain philosophical? This is true. His account is true of certain philosophical problems, not mm. philosophy as a whole. Uh, now, he sometimes makes it sound as if he is talking about philosophy as a whole, but there are various reasons to believe that he didn't really mean that. And I, I think he would have acknowledged, no, it's only true of a part of philosophy, the part he is most... Uh, well, actually, it's not really a part of philosophy, but certain philosophical questions. And how would you confine it? I think um, questions to do with the mind and, and language, which is actually... You know, it's an important part of philosophy, but it is, it is only um, a part of it. 
maybe it's not a matter of the the subject matter, not really a matter of the part of philosophy. It's just that certain things that come up in philosophy may well, I think, be just essentially abuses of language and others not. Um, at, at this stage, I'm, I'm not really easy in precisely defining it anymore. I have to see where I go with that. We spent a lot of, of our previous conversation talking a bit about how the language, the personality of the philosopher, the language style, rhetoric of the philosopher can resonate with people, with modern audiences or contemporary audiences. But obviously the content also is going to resonate differently. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, what are, what are questions that really troubled Enlightenment philosophers that we don't really care about anymore? And what are the questions that we, we still seem to be grappling with and that remain very current with, with our issues and anxieties today? Yes. Con- conflict as they understood it between science and religion. Uh, so it was accommodating the, the new science, essentially, of Galileo, mathematized science more exp- uh, and a more experimental approach to science with Christian uh, dogma. Now, most, most of the Enlightenment philosophers remain believers of one sort or another. Uh, Hume, not, but the vast majority, uh, they, uh, they did, even though they were seen by people at the time as heretics and often called atheists. I mean, Hobbes was called an atheist, and, and that was because uh, his religion and the religion of several of them was, was evolving. They they were they, they they still mostly believed in God, but they were starting to look at God in different ways. Now that wrestling between science and religion, while it's still a live issue for some, is not the center of the intellectual stage anymore. I think certainly not among professional philosophers, the vast majority of whom, although not all, are unbelievers. So that's gone more into the background. Thinking about the nature of political obligation and the state, well, yes, that one is still very much with us. <laughs> That, that remains uh, absolutely live. And I suppose m- m- making sense uh, of science, uh, leaving aside um, its relation to religion, but just seeing how scientific work should uh, affect our understanding of ourselves, for example, understanding our minds, question of free will springs to mind here. Um, that remains very much our, our, our project, I think, as it was um, for the Enlightenment. I'm just trying to think if there's anything else that's really sort of dropped out of focus. No, I, th- I think I think it's the, the liveliness and centrality of the conflict with religion that is less important now. So what, what has changed? Is it that religion just fell from its political centrality? Uh, no, it, intellectuals have drifted away from religious belief. Because it's interesting, because my hunch would be that if anything we are at the cusp of a whole new religious turn of sorts but it, it might not be quite the same quote struggle of the enlightenment but something whatever it is like th- that absence is is being felt more keenly and, and whatever ends up filling that void is not going to be enlightenment thought it's going to be something else and people who find themselves still committed to enlightenment values like myself will probably find themselves in some sort of opposition to it right well, I mean, one important enlight- um, enlightenment value is secularism. So, you know, leaving aside the question of whether you think there is a God, the idea that right. 
that your society should be organized on secular lines and, and religion should remain largely a private matter and that religious authorities should not ipso facto have political authorities. That, that you know, I really hope we stick with, even if more people <laughs> become religious in some sense. But as we're considering the sort of evolution of, of uh, religion, I think it's, it's important to try and have some definition of religion. I mean, mm. a greater interest in new age ideas, um, sort of extreme environmentalism, where it becomes a sort of religion. Do we want to call these ideas religious or not? Well, we 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 really need to define religion. I think if we're going to do much work with it, right? I actually think that your focus on secularism is probably accurate, and I think the thing that my sense is that that is wilting is the commitment to secularism. The absence is the absence of an organizing authority, I think. You can see that with a lot of, of, of the unrest, the political unrest is associated with groups that are trying to reorient their cultural, societal uh, focal. And often it leans towards some authority that, that, that binds them in a way that is post-liberal and, and, and uber-social. And, and you can see how it's almost a uniting feature of both extreme left and right in the U.S. right now, they both display an appetite to abolish the separation of church and state. They just seem to disagree on which church should be instated, or at least which new authority should be able to squash opposition and, and dictate its theology of redemption to the rest of the country. Yeah. Well, may, maybe I'm, I'm naive, but um, naively optimistic, but I, I, I can't really see... Um, the West as a whole um, turning back Bach entirely. Uh, that, that would be most astonishing development. I, I really can't see any signs of that. Yes, of course, there are uh, reactions against secularism, but there is a school of thought that says that, you know, within um, America, leaving aside uh, what, what is happening in some Islamic countries, um, that these are the, these are the, the the death throes of fundamentalism. We're hearing a lot about them because they're failing, because they're losing. That's one view. Now, it, it, you can't take that too far. I mean, it's, there may be some truth to that. I mean, if you look at opinion opinion polls about uh, religiosity and religious belief, you know, the, the young in America are getting more and more secular. But you see also an interesting thread of um, trend or thread, whatever, of people who identify as evangelical as also identifying as less and less religious. So it's it, another sign that the the religious impulse is there, but is not necessarily organized around what we defined as religious 10, 20, 30, 100 years ago. But there is, a, but there is the, the, the drawing force that, that push people around a, a cult of some um, cosmic belief is still there. It's just finding its new focus. Yeah. It's a very hard subject to, uh, to research because I think that opinion polls on religious uh, and spiritual questions uh, and about people's beliefs are incredibly misleading because I think especially on those topics, a lot of people are just joking around. Right. In, the, in the answers they give. Um, I was looking at this, I, I recently re reviewed a book by um, 
Stephen Pinker on rationality for the, uh, the New York Times. Uh, and he talks uh, quite a lot about people's irrational beliefs uh, and cites various um, opinion polls. And I'm very skeptical of what opinion polls reveal about um, such things. I mean, it, it, this is also true of uh, political questions. I mean, one thing I was thinking of uh, while I was working on this was, uh, you know, the polls that show that extraordinarily high proportions of Americans say that they believe the last presidential election was stolen. Well, I wondered if them telling pollsters that really indicates their belief, or if what they really mean is, I'm rather with Trump. And but nothing much more specific than that. And maybe could maybe emote anger at the the person asking them, knowing what they're expecting to hear. Yes, absolutely. A nice example from uh, I remember from some earlier work I, I did a long time ago. Uh, belief in angels. So there are um, opinion polls that show that an enormously high proportion uh, of Americans believe in angels. But if you look at the follow-up questions asked to some of them, you see that quite a lot of them um, mean their own children. My kid is an angel. Yeah. But they're using the, the, the concept pretty broadly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that tricky language once again. Um, well, I, I did want to ask you a question about this idea of the extent to which in t today in current society and academ current academia, the Enlightenment is be the Enlightenment era, and their philosophers are being, instead of embraced, perhaps kind of pushed back on quite strongly. Um, and I'm curious to get your take on: Is this reevaluation of Enlightenment thinkers? Is it kind of good faith engagement with these writers, or is it perhaps kind of not necessarily good faith and and potentially kind of doing them a disservice by by kind of dis dis Miss, dismissing them too too easily. Mm. Or as you put the question, what did the Enlightenment ever do for us? Yeah. Well, I think there are, there are good faith critiques of the um, Enlightenment and bad faith ones. And there are sort of um, ill-informed ones and there are good informed ones. And certainly one legacy of the Enlightenment is to always keep questioning. Uh, and so we must always keep questioning the great Enlightenment writers. The idea that the Enlightenment project, as it's sometimes put, I forget which philosopher first coined that, I think it was possibly Charles Taylor, but I'm not absolutely sure. It's an idea that caught on. Um, that there was an Enlightenment project and it has failed. Um, I don't buy into that at all. Uh, usually what is meant by that argument is the idea of, well, we were all going to become perfectly rational and sensible um, and there would be great progress. Um, and it hasn't happened. So the Enlightenment project failed. Well, this seems to be very sort of black and white thinking. Just because there hasn't been total progress and life isn't perfect, that doesn't mean that some progress wasn't made and it's worth making more progress. So I, I'm not at all convinced by uh, any of the writers who I, I think are really a minority, although they certainly find an audience, that there was something terribly wrong with the Enlightenment. I, I don't buy into that. I'm still a fan. <laughs> well, so is is the primary – what do you consider the primary contribution of that period? Uh, secularism is one. So dividing uh, the, the religion uh, and, and the state 
um, putting as much of our beliefs as possible to the uh, empirical and other tests, putting them to the test, try, which means trying to be scientific. Um, focusing uh, ethics on human welfare rather than what the priests say gods want us to do. Uh, those, I think, are the most important legacies of, of the, the Enlightenment. And skepticism, as you pointed out. Yes, skepticism comes under the, the heading of testing your beliefs, being uh, trying to be as scientific as possible. Yeah, skepticism is, uh, yes, very much. I'm, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the ancient skeptics. One of the things I'm, I most enjoyed in researching the first book was engaging with the, uh, the ancient skeptics. And it was actually the rediscovery of some of their writings that really helped uh, to push along some of the great Enlightenment philosophers, in, in most famously Descartes. There's a quote you bring in your book that that I found incredibly poignant, which is uh, one of the things that united the thinkers of the Enlightenment was that they believed that they were living through an age of Enlightenment. Yes, I, I think that was it. That that line or something like it was from the, the historian of ideas. Um, who I, I quoted? Yes, they thought they thought of themselves as revolutionaries. They thought of the world as being made anew, and that it was essential to their self conception. And they they I, they were basically right. I think <laughs> all of a sudden, science was making great strides. New worlds were being discovered. New civilizations were essentially being discovered by the West, and that led them to question all their own beliefs and practices. And so it made me wonder, how much does the story that we tell ourselves about our own projects end up defining the project? Is the fact that today's discourse, at least on some level, dominated by the lamentations about the West, like, like, like I just uh, put you through, is it... Is that in itself just <laughs> establishing the decline of the West? Well, I mean, only only if it gets a lot worse than it is, I would say. How important is the 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 way that th the self conception of thinkers of their own period uh, to the to the to their legacy and to the epoch that they inhabit? Well, I think it's really only the the thinkers of the Enlightenment where their their view of themselves um, plays. Uh, an important part in their thinking. It doesn't, I mean, I've never really thought about this question before, but just sort of just thinking on my, on my feet, even though I'm sitting down, um, doesn't seem to me true of, of the ancients. I'm, I'm curious about today what the academic, philo uh, the philosophical landscape is, because I'm very, I, I have a cursory understanding of the, the big names in philosophy, but I don't know what's, what's happened since I guess your book finished. So um, what, what is the current status of the philosophical landscape and who are the voices that are intriguing to you? Well, it's um, uh, the landscape is, is very diverse, you know, in the English speaking world, which is what I know best. Uh, there are vastly more um, professional philosophers and uh, students of philosophy than there were, for example, in Russell's time um, or Wittgenstein's time become a much bigger industry. And because it's um, 
a big industry. It's become very, very specialized. It started to, to a certain extent, ape science in that people write for a relatively uh, small subgroup who are working in the same area. Problems get sort of divided up. Um, uh, technical language, uh, techniques uh, develop. It becomes more like a, a difficult science. Now, um, or a set of, dif uh, of difficult sciences. Um, although there is also a great deal of work in uh, public philosophy, politics, uh, ethics, which does not get quite so um, technical. Now, there are some people who, who argue that, well, philosophy has become much too scholastic and technical and can't be understood by ordinary people anymore. Uh, I think that's rather misleading because there, there still are um, in the number of philosophers who can and do write for the general public and communicate to them. It's probably always been true that what's gone on in universities, in philosophy departments, has included an awful lot of stuff that nobody outside those departments has, has been able to understand um, much. So I, I, I don't think there's been a big, this big change in the professionalization. I don't think that the, the professionalization of philosophy has changed the picture all that much. Um, so to go, to go uh, back to your original question, the main thing I'd say about the landscape is that it's very diverse. Now that sounds boring, but uh, and it does make the historian's job much, much harder. But it's gone off in so many different directions at once. You previously said that almost from the beginning of philosophy, um, there's also been a, a current of thinking that philosophy is inherently very silly. <laughs> I, I, I That resonated with me because I think even oftentimes you can be reading philosophy and think, my goodness, this is very, very silly. Um, to what extent do you think, I mean, is philosophy, if philosophy always has to kind of justify its very existence, how do you justify it today? I don't think that philosophy needs to do that. If you have a certain type of intellectual curiosity, you just have to look into those questions. Um, and the people who choose to do philosophy are, are following their intellectual curiosity. Uh, and... I, I don't think it, uh, I think in a, in a, a free, fairly well-off society, that's uh, just what, one of, one of the, the, the values we should have is to let people pursue their uh, intellectual curiosity, their intellectual interests. Now, you can also make a case that, uh, that there is a lot of um, spin-off from philosophy into other areas. Um, and I've written about that a fair bit um, in my book. I mean, philosophers basically invented science. Almost every uh, new subject comes out from the uh, from philosophers just following their noses. Um, and then, of course, when something grows out of philosophy, like science, then you don't call it philosophy anymore. So. Um, you you could you could make a case that philosophy makes um, uh, a lot of progress and has made many contributions, but whenever it makes contributions and progress, it's no longer called philosophy. Uh, this is something Bertrand Russell used to go on about, and I, I think he was absolutely right. Just take one very simple example. I think I talked about in one of, in one of my books. Um, logic has always been made fun of, 
um, going back to Socrates and his logic factory in, in Aristophanes. Um, but it was out of logic, the study of logic by philosophers who were just following their own intellectual curiosity, that we got computer languages and AI and various other parts of maths. Uh, so you could say that, you know, your, your iPhone comes out of the logic factory. But, you know, uh, thankfully, I don't, I'm not in a position where I have to argue for money for philosophy departments. So um, I, I don't have to make that case. Uh, and I certainly don't do philosophy because I think it's going to pay off. I do it because I have to. <laughs> Satisfying curiosity is the, the reward. Yeah. Anthony, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for your time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are Uncertain Pod on the social media. And if you're feeling the holiday spirit, please give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts because it really helps. Share us with your friends and enemies. And until next time, stay safe.